Hey, Cracked fans, a quick note before we get to today's episode. Matt, Chris, and I ended up talking for about two hours on this week's show. It was that exciting of a past week in the college tennis world. And so, to help make things a little bit easier for all of you listeners, we decided to divide this week's episode into two parts. What you're going to hear today is part one of our conversation discussing some of the off-court news in the college tennis world. We recap the NCAA selection committee's decision to incorporate manual adjustments to the Division I team and individual tournament selection processes. We talk about our frustration with the lack of broadcasting available for this weekend's outstanding conference championship play truly you look across the country so many fun college tennis matches obviously it's a little less fun when us fans can't see it and so we discuss both our frustration and then also some of the things we know are in the works to help alleviate that problem moving forward and then of course we have to talk about some of the tennis we saw this weekend and again on part one here today we're going to recap the SEC and Big 12 tournaments Matt the Cracks to Kowiak was actually in Waco to watch Baylor capture the Big 12 title. Of course, all of us were tuned into that dramatic SEC championship between Florida and Tennessee. We actually had the chance to speak with Tennessee associate head coach James McKay. So if you did not hear that podcast, you can find that conversation covering the SEC championship match and everything happening around the Tennessee program on the Cracked Interviews podcast. But again, that's just part one of the conversation. There's even more that happened this week on part two tomorrow. You'll hear hear us talk about the ACC tournament, the Pac-12 tournament, offer our updated Crack Rackets top 10, and so much more. It was a fantastic week, essentially the regular season finale of the 2021 college tennis season. So, of course, we have many thoughts to share on everything that happened. Again, One last note, just to remind all of you listeners, this is just part one of our conversation. Part two going to be released tomorrow for all of you listeners to enjoy. So without further ado, let's get to today's college tennis edition of the Great Shot Podcast. Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It is crazy to think, but folks, we've reached the final week of the 2021 Division I men's college tennis season. A couple of conference tournaments still to wrap up, but What an exciting weekend of tennis we just watched unfold. Four of the Power Five conferences holding their conference tournament the past week. I believe you look in those four championship matches, two of them go 4-3. Of course, we had a couple of upsets as well. It was just a delightful weekend of tennis for us to break down here on today's show. And joining me to do just that, as they always do, are the two other members of our college tennis holy trinity. Let's start where we always start. You know him as a former four-star recruit on TennisRecruiting.net, your favorite writer on our website, CrackRackets.com, the other half of Baylor's Nick Stokowiak, and a man who was in Waco for the Big 12 Championships. It's Matt the Crack Stokowiak. Matty, hey, great shot to you as always. I know you've had the chance to see some college tennis in person this year, but was a full crowd essentially in Waco. I am incredibly jealous that you had that experience have to imagine it was a bunch of fun it was a ton of fun man Mm -hmm. um 
the crowd was great. It, it felt like it felt like college tennis should feel how, how we know that it's supposed to be. And obviously we've had all the challenges this year, but um, it was tremendous, man. I'm sure you know how I'm feeling right now. Just imagine Gruskin. Uh, think of it like if Michigan were mm. to win the Big Ten tournament mm. championship, right, and became number one in the country, you'd be feeling pretty good. And that's how <laughs> I'm feeling right now. So I can't complain, man. Had a great trip to Waco. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I knew you were going to make that comparison. I'm glad you said if they won the championship, I'd not like, oh, if they like beat Illinois or something. I'm like, no, I'd need a little extra juice. You're right. Uh, yeah, for them to win that championship, I would be feeling that way to see it in person. I know when I got to watch my boys compete against Illinois in Champaign, I was just happy to extend my streak to 10 straight years of watching a Michigan match in person. And I just, you know, watching on the streams this weekend, oh, does it feel nice to have these crowds back in, uh, back at these stadiums, back at these matches? It's If you are a college tennis fan and you were wondering, should I get vaccinated, should I not get vaccinated, go watch the streams for these matches. That is the ultimate endorsement for going to get vaccinated because then we all get to be back in college tennis, at college tennis matches next season, creating that atmosphere everywhere and returning the sport to what we all know it can be at its best. Now, of course, speaking of can be at its best, best. We're probably 25 years removed from that, Mark, but also joining us on the podcast today, the third member of our College Tennis Holy Trinity. You know him as the forefather of the College Tennis Ranks formula predictions never far from the listed UTR, one of the many dames who roots for the Liberty Flames, lover of mothers, lover of almond joys, the snitch, the professor. He quotes Henry Ford. It's Chris Halioris. Chris, hey, great shot as always. I love that you're rocking that Tennessee hat here on tonight's podcast. Of course, that's in honor of them taking home that SEC championship. It was a busy weekend of tennis. How are you feeling? Feeling good. Hi, thanks for the compliment. Only 25 years removed from my best. <laughs> that's 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 good. I, was I mean, it's only least... on the court, not off the court. Only on uh, the court. Even on the court, it's at least <laughs> 32. I mean, uh, you know, so yeah, I probably haven't had a good overhead in that long so yeah (laughs) it's tough to hit overheads when you only have one shoulder Chris but no of (laughs) course uh we are so uh appreciative uh for all of you college tennis fans who engaged with us this weekend it felt like we really had college tennis twitter rocking and rolling Uh, We have a couple of things we have to get to before we break down any of this week's matches because, or this past week's matches, because there were a couple of notable items for us to discuss here, things we had been monitoring throughout the year. But before we get into that, Chris, I got to throw you this question. Our guy, Nuno Borges, wins a match in Estoril this week. First ATP main draw win. We had a list going of the players who had graduated college, the men's players, since 2015 and had won ATP matches. I don't have that tweet up in front of me, but roughly the list was like, let's see, Wolf, Torpegard, Eubanks, Mackey, Cressy, uh, who am I missing? Rindernack. Rindernack. Uh, I think Nico Alvarez. Nico uh, Alvarez. Alex Vukic is another guy who had done it. Uh, And now you can throw Nuno on that list. And I'm going to pull up the list as you're giving your answer. But today comes back from, what was it, 5-2 down in the first to steal the set from Chilich. Really had matches to win, uh, had chances to win the match. How are you guys feeling? You know, as part of the NDN crew, how are we feeling today? 
Ah, I mean, how can you how can you feel bad about it? Sure, you wanted to beat Chilich. That would have been huge. But my God, five down, five two, love forty serving, uh, and he's got uh, you know saves three set points there, saves another one after a deuce wins that game, gets the break, holds, gets back into it, wins a breaker in the first set, and then, you know, 6-4, 6-4, the next two sets with a couple chances to, you know, he had he had break chances, just couldn't get them. I mean, you know, Chilich just hit bombs and came up with big forehands, but but you can't, you can't be discouraged over, uh, you know, getting into your first ATP ever winning two qualifying matches, one over a top hundred, the other Brody at like, I don't know, one thirty something, then beating Jordan Thompson at 61. You know, I think the reality sets in now is, well, now it's back to having to get wild cards just to get into a challenger. So <laughs> yeah, it's, know, it's, no, that's, it's that's what's, that's what is crazy is you got a guy that just, just beat, well, like we said, one thirty something, 91, 61, and then goes three, six, four in the third with Chilich. And the only tournament he can get into is a futures. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy how hard it is to get into tournaments nowadays. So it's uh, it's nice to see that happen. But at the same time, you know, I worry not only for him, but other guys coming up like an Oliver Crawford or, you know, whoever they are that are starting to win futures tournaments, just going, man, you've got to win. You know, you've got to put a bunch of those in before you can even get to the point where you can play challengers. 100% and Nuno now inside the top 400. Here's the list, by the way, some ones, some obvious ones I can't believe I missed saying there. So it's Nuno, Vukic, Schnurr, Torpegard, Wolf, Cam Nori, duh, Dom Kofer, duh, Jensen Brooksby, technically. You've also got Surindolo, Eubanks, Andrew Harris, Mackie McDonald, and Noah Rubin. Now, Maddie. All of those guys were either ranked number one or in the top five, I believe, except for Surindolo, of the ITA singles rankings. I feel like this is about as good of an endorsement ever as you can say. College tennis, if you're the best player in college tennis, you probably have a pathway in the pros. Yeah, I mean, why why not? It's it, the, the level's only going up. Um, I mean, it seems like each year the highest level of college tennis is just more and more competitive. So many of these guys have shown that they can make it on the tour, but you know, again, it's a pathway for, for certain guys, you know, when you look at some of those players, you just mentioned, Hey, if they had gone straight pro right out of high school, I don't know if they'd be where they are right now. So uh, you know, it all depends on the situation, but in the right scenario, um, yeah, college is a is a great path, and, and it's just that's getting proved over and over again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and again, a shout-out to Nuno for earning himself his first ATP-level W. Okay, with that in mind, time to talk about some of the off-court news in college tennis from the past week. Of course, the reason we're able to do all of this day in, day out. Oh, you guys thought you were getting away without me plugging something? No, 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 come on. This is the Great Shot Podcast, and you guys know these Great Shot Podcasts only made possible because of the support we get from you listeners, from our Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Turn of Tennis. To get college pricing or free samples, tell our friends at Crack Racket sent you by emailing them at sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800 500 
888-554-3707. Again, sales at uniquesports.com or 800-554-3707. We mentioned Chris, 25 years past his prime. Well, Turner Grip probably was founded right around Chris's prime, and it is still in the prime of its career. That iconic blue found on the rackets of hundreds of touring pros. So, Contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707. Now, with all of that said, it's been a busy week in the college tennis world, and we really have to take care of some off-court business before we can get to the on-court stuff because we have an announcement. The NCAA Division I Men's and Women's Tennis Committees have announced that they will deviate from their standard practices to select this year's fields for the team and individual NCAA championships. This was a story Chris and I broke on Monday. Uh, And I I say Chris and I because, you know, again, he helps me break all of these stories here. And unlike him, I'm always going to give him credit when he does. Uh, (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Anyways, uh, you know, there's a long announcement explaining why they made this decision. I feel like we have worked through the why for this decision long enough, so I'm not going to repeat that I am going to announce the criteria. And again, this criteria applies for both the team and individual selections. One, use the same foundational criteria, head-to-head, win-loss record, strength of schedule, common opponents, significant wins, and eligibility and availability of student-athletes. However, be able to identify those teams and individuals who might be adversely impacted by the lack of non-conference scheduling and therefore underranked and place them within a recommended range and evaluate them individually against the other teams or individuals within that range to ensure that they are placed in the appropriate position within the bracket. In other words, much like we do here at Crack Rackets, they're going to make tiers, and you can understand why they're planning to do that. Number two of the criteria, continue to use the ITA computer rankings but weight the rankings less. Then in a traditional year three, monitor conferences through committee members. Four, review conference rankings of teams, singles, and doubles players provided by each conference. Six, uh, four, six, excuse me, five, and most importantly, review pass brackets for informational purposes. That is something, all of these things are things we discussed when offering potential solutions last week. Maddie, I'm going to go to you first. Essentially, what translation, we are going to make manual adjustments to this selection process. Took them a couple of months, but they got it right, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm fine with it. Really, at this point, I, I don't care. I, like, I'm yeah. over it. I feel like I've said this before. Let's see when the selections come out. You know, I think we have to revisit this after the fact, because then we can diagnose and say, okay, did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? I don't know if you can ask me that question right now if they got it right, because we really don't know. I mean, we don't know where they're going to place these teams in the singles and the doubles and all of that. So um, I, I still think it's all to be determined. I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. I have no problems. Make the manual adjustments. We all know that teams like Ohio State, Michigan should be higher. So I'm, I'm good with that. Stanford, you know, teams, you know, that are like that. Um, but let's see where it falls. I mean, that's going to be the most important thing. We'll revisit this later on, and and hopefully they do get it right. I'm not sure that they will, um, but we know we know how they're going to approach this, and we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of questions. Who are this selection committee? What exactly, you know, what are they exactly looking at? That's a pretty vague criteria, but it's always vague. What are you ever looking at when you're making selections like this? It's the obvious things, the wins, the losses, the rankings, the strength of schedules, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty straightforward what sort of metrics you can look at. That being said, Chris, 
Uh, I'm sure in your head you're like, if I was the selection committee, what adjustments perhaps would you make, or are these the adjustments you would have made as well? Well, I'm a little more fearful that it's not just manual adjustments, if you will, right? Like I think I think that's kind of what we – what people want to read into it. And maybe it's what will be done is that, Hey, they're going to take the computer ranks and they're going to go and say, yeah, Michigan, you're in. Yeah. Northwestern you're in Minnesota. Should we put them in or not bubble? Maybe do we go any farther than that in the big 10? Probably not. But next up would be like Penn state and Indiana. Um, I don't know that that's exactly, you know, and then, and then pack 12, right. First team out being Utah. Do we do that? I'll tell you what I do know. The ITA, even though I've not seen anything announced publicly, is gathering a lot more information than what they've stated of, hey, we're given computer ranks and, uh, you know, and issues slash challenges to the NCAA committee uh, for their consideration, right? They've actually gotten RPIs, Massey ratings, ELO ratings, Terry rating, all other kinds of ranking systems to use as input. So if you take all of that information and pass it along, now you've got, a, you know, now you're on information overload for the committee. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, some of those are, uh, you know, they all have their different strengths and what they look at. So some are going to be uh, a little more probably level with what you might consider, say, along in the lines of a coach's poll versus the way the current computer rankings are. But, uh, but yeah, I don't, I honestly, I don't know what to make of it. Is it going to be basically computer ranks with manual adjustments or is it going to deviate wildly? That's, that's what I'm more interested to see. And not even so much for the team. I think the team uh, won't deviate that far from computer ranks. It's just a matter of how many teams. And yes, obviously, whoever the team is that was last one out, out in the computer rankings that gets snubbed for a big 10 or an extra pac 12 or whatever is going to be upset. There's no question, right? Unless they just add teams into the field and make it 68 instead of 64, someone's going to be mad that they look like they were inside the bubble and didn't get it. I'm a lot more interested to see what happens with the individuals being the singles and doubles rankings, because that's where with what they've said now, they're opening themselves up to, hey, we're not, you know, we've got so many Big Ten guys that we have to worry about that, eh, we're just going to kind of throw the computer rankings out. Forget all the guys that actually played the fall uh, and played in the in the in in all their dual matches. We're just going to go by the eye test and the UTRs and whatever and just go, yeah, this guy, you know, whoever he is, he deserves to be. And we'll take a number one guy from some Big Ten team, right? Say I go... Penn State, number one. I don't even know where he is in the rankings or if he's in the rankings. But maybe we go, yeah, we're going to take the Penn State, number one, put him in. And then you've got guys like, say, uh, you know, uh, Bicknell at Florida, who's sitting right around what I would traditionally call the cut line at 52. Mm-hmm. He plays four on his team. So are they going to look at that and go, ah, this guy plays four, this other guy plays one, but he's not even ranked? Yeah, we're going to take that, that guy. That's where I think you're going to get a lot of people up in arms if they go that far with the deviations. And again, we don't know how it's going to work. So until it happens, you know, we we can't really speculate. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Again, there's someone's going to get frustrated. That's just the nature of the beast. We said that three weeks ago when we started this conversation is that's always inevitable. Whenever there are manual adjustments, whatever it can be, someone is going to get ticked off. Um, that being said, this is about as close to the correct situation as you want. There are always going to be snubs. There, And every year, whether it's a regular season or not, the rankings are going to be a little bit off. And there are going to be opinions where 86 is better than number 48. And he should be in the tournament and 48 shouldn't be. And vice versa. And, you know, again... That's going to happen no matter what. This solution, at least, and you're right, Chris, it is going to be fascinating to know what sort of information they're using, who's making these sorts of decisions, but at least the decision's been made, and that's what we've been calling for for weeks here. Got to give praise where praise is due. At least now we know moving forward what everything is going to look like. Uh, In terms of, again, how some of the other uh, off-court stuff that was big this past week across tennis Twitter, A, uh, you know, it's award season. People are going to get in beefs. There's going to be some snubs, as always, all conference teams, players of the years, coaches of the years. I dipped my toes into the waters, perhaps uh, inappropriately, when I brought up the fact that I would have loved to see Kova and Cannon Kingsley split the Big Ten Player of the Year. I think, you know, Kova undefeated at the number one position. Yes, he's missed about half the matches to go play pro events, but we all know how difficult it is to go undefeated at number one. Of course, Kingsley's undefeated as well, and he's done it at a combination of number one and number two. Uh, They obviously both had thoughts on the topic as well. And again, I'm not advocating for one over the other. I'm advocating for both. want to make that pretty clear. But I guess, Maddie, to go to you first, your takes on award season. I I hope in the tweet people realize I was like, I don't really care. Like, it's just an award. Everyone deserves recognition. It is what it is. Um, That being said... I feel like it's kind of good for college tennis to get a little juice. Like, I know people were beefing, but the interest in college tennis felt like it was getting at a peak this weekend. Yeah, I mean, with things, (laughs) with awards like that, somebody's always going to be pissed off, right? Like, no matter what, and I just, I I don't know. I'm not going to comment on anybody (laughs) that I thought who should get it, who shouldn't. I'm staying out of that. I'm not getting involved in that whatsoever. Um, I don't want to talk about that publicly, but I, I mean, you know, for me, the awards, it, it's nice to get recognition. It, it, it is, but at the end of the day, I really don't think any of these guys are are truly playing for like individual awards like that. I mean, I think it's more about the team, how far they can go. I mean, when you get to NCAA individuals, right, you're trying to win a championship. That's one thing, but these conference awards and all that blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, there's always snubs in it. It is what it is. I don't think we can read too much into it. And, you know, some of those guys just, they'll, they'll end up brushing it off. It's going to be good. This will be gone a, a few days from now. Yeah, and of course, unfortunately, we're not going to get to see Kova versus uh, King Cannon. So uh, I will get to see the teams potentially, but we won't get to see. Well, hopefully, we won't get to see the teams. We'll save that for a little bit later. But uh, again, um, yes, I... I, I, I would echo that point. Uh, to move to the flip side of that conversation, if that was part one of what was had tennis Twitter going off, part two, and this is, again, our final non-tennis-centric related piece of news, the lack of broadcasting availability for some of these conference tournaments. The uh, the ACC had four three-thrillers seemingly every night, and UNC was playing without Rinky and Will for a lot of it, and they got pushed by every team they played. And, you know, then that Wake Forest, the drama with Eduardo Nava, and we'll get there, folks, I promise. But, you know, there was no stream 
for the action in Rome. For the Pac-12, I literally devolved to the point where I was downloading, deleting, and then re-downloading the Pac-12 app on my phone because every time I did that, I got free uh, five free minutes of uh, ability to watch. And like, I shames out the window when you're trying to do a podcast like this every week. I got to watch the matches, but... I mean, Chris, I saw you comment on it. Again, being in the know, and the reason I wanted to bring this up, these schools, these players, even the ITA, they're aware of this. They would like to broadcast these matches as much as anyone else. I just want to be clear. It's the conferences. It's the bigger picture. Tennis is negotiated in the bundle of all non-revenue sports. The Big Ten Network, the Pac-12 Network, the you know conference networks are trying to make money and establish themselves to support the infrastructure of college sports, which we don't have to get into right now. All of that said, Chris, I mean, I can understand the frustration, can't you? Oh, absolutely. It's a joke. I mean, the, to have Power 5 conferences, I mean, uh, it should be required for every conference, but for for goodness sake, a Power 5 conference that you can't even watch the the matches of is is absolutely ridiculous and and why you had to keep downloading the pac-12 app instead of just calling me and getting like a password for a for a cable provider or something is beyond me i, I ah gee many christmas no, so, but yeah so i, I tried I, to I, use my cable provider because i have one and it just locked me out it was like nope this does it would not in the range or whatever and i was oh, like that doesn't it, make it sense. let me use my dish network thing but, oh uh, no that's what it was you had to have dish and i was xfinity oh uh, but but yeah, I mean to to not be able to watch those ACC matches is I mean it's it's terrible and yeah I think the I, I had made one comment on there it's real it's it's on the schools and these conferences to to do their negotiations you know with the networks to say look if you guys aren't going to broadcast our match you have to let us broadcast you know have the ability to broadcast it just so we can publicize our sport. You're holding, you know, it's hurting us to not do it. And if you're not going to do anything with it, we, I understand if they're going to put it on ESPN three or ACC network or Longhorn network or whatever it is, right? Fine. That's great. Then people can see it, but if you're not going to put it out there, uh, especially in the cases when, you're not even going to let them have the play. You know, there's not even a play site system up or something. That's even worse. But then when there is play site, but you won't let a broadcast happen just because you own the rights, the schools and the conferences have to step in and figure out a way to get that solved. And th- I mean, that's on them. They're, they're the ones that negotiate that stuff. They should realize they're hurting themselves by doing it. And the schools have a huge incentive to do it because look, we've all seen what happens to tennis programs when people want to start cutting budgets and, how do you solve that? Well, you get people that, you, you know, you get people that want to watch it, that will get all up in arms if you cancel it and get into the sport and you need it. You need a broadcast to do that. Yeah, uh, I would echo all of that 100%. Like, if you want college tennis to be seen, it has to be broadcastable. That's just a fact. It's the, you know, the nature of the beast. And again, it's a it, to players, coaches in the loop who are hearing this, they're going to be frustrated because they feel the same way. They're saying, why are you blaming us? We want this just as much as anyone. There are, you know, tennis in the grand scheme. It's unfortunate, but it's just one of countless non-revenue sports that doesn't have a high slot in the pecking order. That being said, like to Chris's point, Maddie, these are power five conferences. And I know you know a little bit more about Rome than we do, but like, come on, what are we doing here? Yeah, it's sad. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's it's just really sad because uh, there were so many good matches. And I, you guys know I love the ACC. I have mm. for a long time and um, been to Rome, Georgia a lot. It, it really Beautiful is. Beautiful facility. It's a really nice facility. Um there's just there's there's no excuse not to have a stream up so we can at least just stream the matches it's not like we even need commentary we don't necessarily need a broadcast booth let us just watch the matches i mean at the bare minimum that's that's fine i think people would be okay with that just flip the stream on um it's just yeah it's disappointing because college tennis fans want to watch these matches and when you can't do it um following the live scoring we all know this anybody that watches college tennis knows you following that live scoring is good luck tough. <laughs> is tough i mean Especially that is when it's agonizing well, well that's a, oh yeah that's that's a totally different story that's just unacceptable <laughs> when it's a half hour behind even when it's on time it's still pretty agonizing because you don't know what's going on you see the scoring so um, yeah, we just, we have to find a way. Let's start with the power fives. Like you guys mentioned at the minimum, let's get the power fives, get those streamed. And then we can even work to some of the other conferences, but at a minimum, we've got to be able to watch the power five conference tournaments, no matter yeah. what. No, I would a hundred percent agree. Again, it's just like to a certain point, what are we doing here? Like, let's get our act together. If you're going to host a conference tournament, you have to have to be able to have streaming capabilities and it can't just be for the championship match I understand if you want to stop the streaming abilities and on the champion in the championship match that's the one that's on ESPN plus that's the one that's on Longhorn Network that's the one that's on whatever specialty network you have but to rob us of quarterfinals semifinal matches are you kidding me like this is it sometimes college tennis shoots itself in the foot and again I am not placing the blame on the ITA here this is a conference problem but the ITA is the governing body and it's just like moving forward at the next committee it's got to be like all right we can't do this anymore and I know these discussions have existed before but it feels like now they're more prominent than ever particularly and I know we're biased here we're dipping our toe in something we're talking about just call us like a Cracked Rackets Red Zone broadcast is a three-minute phone call away, folks. And so now that we know how easy it is, short of setting up cameras, if you want a broadcast, it's possible. And it's just it's unacceptable to not have those broadcasts, particularly when you are a Power 5. But thankfully, there was some Power 5 tennis available for us to consume. And with that in mind, it is now time to talk about the tennis we saw unfold. And again, a lot of of major conference action happening across the country. I think the place we have to start was the drama that got it all started this weekend. SCC tournament held in Arkansas. Started the week with snow, which of course that set the tone for, oh, things are going to get funky here. And boy, did they get funky, fellas. Let's just get right into that championship match. Tennessee Three losses on the season entering the event. They lost to North Carolina at the kickoff weekend. They lost to Arkansas at Arkansas. That was their one. And then they took a pretty comp. It was 4-0 at the time of clinching lost to Florida during the regular season. Volunteers dropped the doubles point against Florida the first time they played. And in a preview podcast I did, I said doubles, one, two, and three. I know that's crazy to say, but that might be the recipe for Tennessee to beat this Florida team They started out by getting the doubles. They got two. 
They got three. They ended or they got two and five, and they ended up getting three. And there was a lot of drama in between. We'll just start with that doubles point, Maddie. Uh, we'll get to Weindeman, by the way. All the all the calls at the end, all the controversy. I promise we'll get there. But let's just start with the doubles for this Tennessee team to earn the way uh, to win the doubles point. I suppose really just the way that they did against Florida for them to take uh, you know comfortable sets at the number one and two position. Walton and Harper six four Monday and Prada seven five. Of course, you know Florida. Felt like they had found a doubles recipe. Then they started and played around again at the end of the year. Switched their lineups. Ingledson Grant now at one. Volley Goodyear two. Riffis Shelton three. I mean, it's a credit to Tennessee, right, Maddie? They came out, and I believe they were down a little bit in doubles, but they swung back. They take this doubles point. Yeah, well, the first thing that that I noticed here was just the lineup change, right, Mm -hmm. for Florida. Interesting pairings, um, but Tennessee's been really good at doubles all year. They always are. I, I just feel like that school in particular places a big emphasis on doubles. They're always really fundamentally sound and they just, they play smart. They're well coached. Um, but the doubles point didn't start that well. I mean, if we're being honest here, court number three, Sam Riffis and Ben Shelton, a new team that we hadn't really seen throughout the year, absolutely dominate down there against Hussey and Walner who have been a really good number three team for the volunteers. So that was actually a bit of a surprise to me, you know, that they were able to take a six, one set there. And then at one and two, I mean, it comes down to just a couple of points. These were pretty tight sets. You call them comfortable, Gruskin. I don't know if I would say they're all that comfortable uh, for the Vols. I mean, they had to grind these out just a little bit, but Walton and Harper, they're sitting at number three in the country for a reason. I've really liked this team. Um, and they've won so many good matches this year at number one. So it's not really surprising that they were able to put that point up there. And then it all comes down to number two, and that's probably the court where you look at and go, yeah, I mean, the the point could get hung here. But Monday and Prada, they played together all year long. I mean, I'm I'm not really surprised that they were able to come through here 7-5 over Vale and Goodger. Just a good doubles point all around, but it, it does make a huge difference. Just that momentum going into singles, Earlier in the year, Tennessee did not win the doubles point against mm-hmm. Florida. This time they get it done, and, and that ends up being a big, big difference. Yeah. Tennessee 24-3 and overall on this season, 21-5 and in their doubles points. You look at that duo of Monday and Prada, who have played primarily at the number two position uh, in doubles. They are essentially now, I believe, t- or not essentially, they are 12-7 and seven at that number two position. Walton Harper, 15-6. and six. And, you know, Chris, you and I had the chance to talk with Coach Mackay. You can go hear that conversation on the Cracked Interviews podcast. We broke down this match. He emphasized it then as well. I mean, you look for this team. 15 and 6 at number 1. You know, Walner and Hussey are 14 and 5 at 3. Yeah, they got popped by Shelton Riffis on this occasion, but you know, Johannes Monday, best freshman in the country. I don't think it's a question anymore. He has established himself as the guy right now and you have him at the number 2 position you feel like is a luxury. This Tennessee team I mean, if they take doubles points, they can beat anyone. And as we get into singles for them, you know, they take that doubles point. They earn first sets at number two, uh, number three, number, uh, I believe, number five as well. They also end up getting second sets at four and six. Uh, I mean, Chris, uh, I, we've said it all along. It's been a top five tier. 
It's been Baylor, North Carolina, Virginia. Uh, I'm missing a team here, and Tennessee. Um, and you look Florida. for Florida and Florida. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, see, I'm missing a team because I've already xed them out. And for, it does feel like, though, I will say in my head that those first four, just because I've seen them do it recently, that I had just a notch below, uh, above Tennessee, who was kind of on its own in five. And you know, this year's results, they'd beaten everyone they're supposed to beat, but I needed to be convinced. This one convinces you, right? I mean, they take that doubles point, they get wins at two, three, and five, and they knock off a Florida team that hasn't lost since January. Your reaction to Tennessee's performance in this match? Yeah, I mean, not shocked. Uh, I think I think for Tennessee, it's one of those. I think you called it. They've got to win doubles, and sure, when you're playing Florida, the best path probably is going to be doubles one, two, three, no matter who you are, to try to beat them. Uh, you know, and maybe the way Tennessee did it at five. Uh, but uh, but yeah, when Tennessee takes the doubles point, they've got, they're just so solid up and down that like we've talked about many, many times, it's hard to find locks anywhere, but it's also hard to say you're going to beat four of them uh, in singles because they're just good at every position. Monday is pretty damn close to a lock. I mean, he's been, he's been unbelievable. Uh, but after that, yeah, they're just and, and Wiedemann has been really, really good, too. So it's tough to you, you drop doubles and you're looking at having a hard time at beating Monday or Wiedemann. It's uh, you know, it's one of those where, wow, good chance you're three zero in the hole. And, and what do you you know, what do you do now? So hmm. so not overly surprised. I'll say for on the flip side, uh, you know, Florida doubles for the SEC tournament was just atrocious. Hmm. Uh, there's no bones about it. They didn't win a doubles point. They lost the doubles point to Mississippi State. Uh, I don't have records up, Gruskin. You could probably look it up. The, those are my guys. I can't really, I can't, I don't think I can count hand the number of doubles points they won <laughs> this year and they beat Florida. Um, so, so that was, you know, that's, that's not a great uh, doubles point loss. They dropped the doubles point to Texas A&M, have to come back and win four singles. And then they dropped the doubles point in the end uh, to Tennessee. So I think Riffis and Shelton, like you said, they, they've come together. They look spectacular. I don't think we'll see changes there. I can't imagine we see those top two teams staying the same as we move to NCAAs. They're either going to do a ton of work together and convince themselves that they like the teams and it was just a bad week, or we're going to see some changes. So you asked the question, Mississippi State, according to my numbers, has won six doubles points in their 25 matches this year. Six of them, Chris. And three. Throw out the Alcorn States or Samford yeah. or whoever the hell, right? Six during the regular. One, two, hold on. I may have miscounted. One, two, three, four, five, six. But yeah, I mean, now if I'm throwing those out, six serious doubles points, I suppose. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, no, it, it's not great for them. And for Florida, the recipe is always so straightforward, right? Win four, win six, find two more, whether it's doubles or at the other singles flights. And of course, it's funny you say that because looking at the ITA rankings, their top three singles players, all top 20 players in the country. And yet the strength <laughs> yeah. of their lineup is the number four and six singles positions. And this gets into the drama. Luca Wiedemann now moved up from number five to number four, and I think it's safe to say he's probably going to be there for the rest of the year. Uh, He runs out a lead on Bicknell in that third set. Bicknell comes roaring back, able, you know, their trade breaks, but Bicknell ends up getting us back on serve. We head to a tiebreaker, 6-3 Wiedemann leads. He's serving uh, two two points on his racket to serve for the match to give Tennessee the clinch. 
6-3, second serve. He hits it. Whether it's on the line or not, I'll leave that up to the gods to decide. But Blaze McNell calls it out. However, the Tennessee team did not see that out call. And they subsequently rush Wiedemann after Bicknell misses his return in the net. Now, thankfully for Florida in the moment, the line judge was on the line. He was noticing what Blaze Bicknell did, and he confirmed the out call. Immediately, you hit a, hear a roar from James McKay, who yells, that's a joke. And we talked about the whole scenario with Coach, again, on the Cracked Interviews podcast. But double fault confirmed, 6-4. They play another point. Wienemann misses in the net, 6-5. Goes to Blaze Bicknell, who hits a second serve in or out. Again, gods can decide, but Wiedemann calls it out. He gets overruled for 6-all. Bicknell ends up taking the tiebreaker, tying the match at 3. Let's keep in mind, the Tennessee team had rushed Wiedemann upon him allegedly clinching the match. All eyes then turned to Martin Prada, who was up a break, but had given up that break lead to Andy Andrade. But Manny, this is a recipe we've seen before. Tennessee with a clinching match against Andy Andrade for Florida. They get the job done once again. Prada 7-5 in the third. What do you make of all of it? I mean, because there was some, it, it was chaos. Yeah, it was very chaotic. And and all I can say, the one that I know for a fact, the 5-6 Big Nell serve, the thing was in the uh, the opposite box. <laughs> it was so It was so far out. It was so clear. I do feel bad for Luca because... He calls it out and it was so far out. And then to get overruled there, I mean, that's just, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know how I would react, but that one I am certain of. I saw that very clearly. I watched the replay over and over and over and over again. It was not close. I mean, that thing, he was certain it was out, um, you know, and to get overruled like that, um, you know, it's, it's tough. I, I don't know what to say, but it was chaotic there was drama. I mean, it made for a super fun match. I would have enjoyed being there in person. I wasn't, but, um, you know, credit to the Vols for not really letting, I mean, that could have easily swung the other way, right? They come rush the court. They think that they have it won. And all of a sudden that gets taken away. Like in college tennis, the momentum there, that could have easily flipped and Florida could have ran away with that thing, Mm -hmm. but they didn't. And Prada came back like that showed me a lot really about this Tennessee team, just mentally, like how they show up, just that compete level. Um, that was impressive. So the Vols, yeah, this is going forward now into the tournament. These guys, I mean, they're going to be a tough out for anybody. They can absolutely contend and, and go all the way in my mind. Yeah, I mean, again, for the fact that the only straight set win for Florida was Vale five and five over Wall Net one, that match was a pick'em. Could have gone either way. And, you know, for Monday, just to decisively knock off Riffis four and four and just again for uh Giles Hussey, four and three over the freshman Ben Shelton, that was a flipping of result from the prior dual match. But it speaks to the resolve of this Tennessee team. It speaks to the fact they might not have a ton of deep postseason experience, but this was a team in 2019 that knocked off Florida in the SEC semifinals. That core is still on this roster now. They come back here, you know, win the SEC tournament, 
Uh, you can just tell again for them to, as you mentioned, withstand mentally the drain of just, oh, like, did we win? Did we not win? What is going on? It feels like they got screwed three different times at the end of that four singles match. Chris, I'll give the final word on this match to you because, again, 4-3 Tennessee, it was a, it was essentially a pick 'em, And the, you talked about Florida's uh, doubles performance. It was abysmal all week long. But I don't think this result changes how we feel about them, or at least I'll say it doesn't change how I feel about them heading into the postseason. And your final takeaways again coming out of this SEC championship match. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I don't feel any worse about Florida because I think if if anything, maybe that's going to help them figure out a stronger doubles setup going into NCAA's. Uh, and I think uh, I, I think we kind of all feel like the doubles points probably a little more important for Tennessee to get. Florida's probably a little more able to withstand losing a doubles point and still get singles. But if they figure it out, yeah, again, these two teams are so even. They split their two matches during the season now. Would love to see them meet up again in, say, the quarters or the semis uh, of NCAAs, depending on how that uh, that all plays out. Uh, but, yeah, or, or even the championship. Who knows if they're on opposite halves. But I would I'd love to see that match again. Yeah, a great match. And I, I it's unfortunate that the officiating – gets to where we're talking about it, but it's one of those things. Tennessee did what they had to do. Like we talked with coach McKay, that kind of stuff happens in every match. Maybe it's not at six, five and a third set breaker that it happens, but it happens every match. There are overrules that are bad overrules. There are non overrules that are bad, non overrules, right? It's always going to happen. And the players know it's going to happen. And the coaches know it's going to happen. You just have to, you know, deal with it, not let it be the decider in the out, you know, for the match and go on. And Tennessee did that. They were able to say, you know, hey, okay, we didn't go our way on that court. We'll get it on the next one. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a pretty fair approximation. And again, looking through the rest of this conference tournament, Florida 4-3 win over Texas A&M in the semis, 4-2 win over Mississippi State for Tennessee, was 4-0 win over South Carolina, and a 4-1 win over Ole Miss. Your other notable upset, I suppose, was South Carolina knocking off Georgia for two. A&M did, I believe, have Habib back in the lineup for them this weekend. You know, for them, they were able to get a very impressive 4-1 win over Kentucky, and then again push Florida to that 4-3 mark. Maddie, start with you and then go to you, Chris. Your final takeaways from this SEC regular season and this SEC conference tournament. Yeah, well, the takeaway for the whole season is just how fun the conference really is. I mean, all the matches, just the competitiveness throughout the entire conference. Um, and, and it made for a really fun conference tournament. It, you know, it's, it's I think, what we expected overall. None of us were shocked to see Florida and Tennessee battle it out. And, um, you know, Tennessee played a hell of a match. They, they got the win. And, you know, looking forward for Florida, like Chris said, I mean, it's never – you don't want to lose, right? You do not want to lose in a conference championship match – but Florida hadn't lost since like January, like mid January or something ridiculous. If they lose now, right. I, it just may, it may work in their favor. And if they're the ones that win NCAAs at the end and they're hoisting the trophy, they get the last lap. So we'll see how it shakes out. Um, but yeah, it was a great tournament. Congrats to the Vols. They earned yeah. it. 
That's an excellent point, Maddie. And I had a player who plays for a very good team, a fellow national championship contending team. I'm not going to say who it was, obviously, who texted me and said, man, I really hope Florida doesn't lose in the SEC tournament because if they don't lose, I think they're far less dangerous than if they do lose. So to your point, we saw this Florida team lose to Tennessee in 2019. They rallied off of that to make the NCAA uh, semifinals. Now this year they lost in the championship. Dare I say, does this mean they're going to make the NCAA championship? Sometimes you can find some uh, some trends in the echoes of history. Chris, again, I'll ask you for the final time. Is it going to be 10? Is it going to be 11? Is it going to be 12? How many SEC teams are we getting in? And your thoughts on how this conference broke down this year? Well, so you got to set the over under at 11 and a half and pick, right? Yeah. Uh, or <laughs> it's what well, there's 13 teams. The question is, uh, so, so Vandy's not getting in. Yeah. Uh, Auburn, okay, let's say Auburn is not probably not getting in. They're in the projections right now. They're the first team out, mm-hmm. and and that's with them in front of Michigan. We already know Michigan and Northwestern have to get in, mm-hmm. so that puts them three out. So Auburn's not getting in. So so two out. Now the question is, the next team up is Arkansas. They're like four in right now, but you put Michigan in, you put Northwestern in. If you put Minnesota in, that's three. Do you put Utah in from the Pac-12, who's like right behind Michigan at the moment? Maybe that would knock them out. So it's a question of, I think, is it 10 or 11? I'll stick. I'm going to stick and say it's 11 and Arkansas is in just because I don't know how far off the script they're going to run. And by computer rankings, they should get in. But yeah, we're looking at at 10 or 11 and the next team up in actually in front of that, the next at large bid in front of that is LSU. So if they got really crazy, they could take both Arkansas and LSU out and, and make it nine. But, uh, you know, but I, I still say 11 LSU and Arkansas both in. Yeah. All right. That's a good number. Uh, and again, this SEC t- uh, conference, Florida, Tennessee at the top, but we know Texas A&M right in that conversation. Georgia, we were probably a year too soon on coming into the season, but them, South Carolina, Kentucky, uh, Ole Miss, there may be Mississippi State you want to throw in there as well. No one wants to face those teams. Round of 64, round of 32, and you know certainly a lot of high seeds are going to have to do just that. So, oh, it was a fantastic year of SEC tennis, as you both mentioned. With that in mind, let's now switch gears and go to the place where Maddie was this past weekend in Waco for the Big 12 Championships. Ultimately, Baylor responds to dropping that match to Texas last week. They earned victories here, uh, I believe, over uh, both TCU and then ultimately a 4-3 win over TCU on Sunday was a 4-0 win for Baylor uh, uh, over Texas on Monday. You look at that Sunday match in particular for the Bears. It's a recipe, you know, that they're going to need to have come the NCAA tournament because you're going to drop a doubles point. Happens to every team at some point in the match. And why I said last week, and I don't remember if it was on the podcast, off the podcast, we were talking about it, why I had Baylor as my national championship favorites at this point of the season is because it really does feel like they're the team who can afford to have the most go wrong. They can drop a doubles point. They can drop three sets. And yet they are so competitive at all six of their singles flights. They are so strong at that four through six positions 
that they just have a lot of recipes to forward. You look for them in this match, you know, straight set wins from Sven La, who is playing his best tennis of the year at four, uh, a straight set win from Charlie Broom, who's lost like three times in total here at five. Adrian Boitan gets a four and four win over Alistair Gray at one. And then Spencer Furman delivers the goods, and it's a luxury when you can have a former number two singles player in a Power 5 conference as your sixth guy. He gets a 7-5 in the third win over Paralek. Again, in terms of that match against Texas, it was really just all Baylor from the start. They jump on them in the doubles point, and then they earn straight set wins from uh, Soto, 1-3 over Braswell. Good bounce back from Soto after he cramped the day before. Charlie continued to rock and roll, 3-2 and two win over Chi-Chi. And then Adrian Boyt on four and four over Spaziri. Maddie, you saw it in person. Is this Baylor team clicking? And how dangerous is that for the rest of the country? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh Gruskin, the Baylor team is clicking on all, all cylinders right now. Um this this team is so dangerous and they're coming together at just the right time. I mean, this is perfect timing. They couldn't have scripted it any better to be playing at their peak right now. And it really is a total team effort. I mean, you mentioned it, Gruskin. You're looking up and down the lineup. They can win anywhere. But it's not even just that. I mean, it's everybody that's out there. I mean, coaches and trainers and everybody's bought in 100%. Like me being there, actually being around these guys, around the program, like you realize – 100% buy it. Everyone's in and it's crazy, but yeah, they're clicking, man. Um, It was so much fun to watch and and everybody contributed, you know, the doubles TCU played fantastic in that match in the semis. You know, I really couldn't even be that upset. They just played, played well. Um, And for Baylor to come back in that match, the way that they did, I mean, you look up and down the lineup dubs, Connie, Sven, they're starting to click, right? In the beginning of the season, we were like, okay, this is a top 10 team for sure. They struggled a little bit, but now they're rolling. I mean, Captain Connie, this guy's leading the charge. He's getting the crowd pumped up. Him and Sven, they're finding it, and they're really playing well. I was happy that they were able to avenge the loss, losses, I should say, to Spaziri and Waldi. They lost three straight times to those guys this season. They finally get them when it matters most. That was fantastic to see. Um, obviously, Nick and Marty at, at two, they're just so solid. I mean, they do it right. Fundamentals, they return well. They're not going to beat themselves. It's really going to take a, a pretty big effort to beat those guys, I think, I, because they don't lose. I mean, you look at their record you know, throughout the season. I think they've lost one match dating back to the fall since they've partnered Nick and Marty one loss, and that ironically was to SMU. Uh, which was kind of a a, a bizarre match there. They were leading 5-2. I don't even want to get into that. But, you know, when it counts, they show up. So they're looking good. And how about Finn and Charlie, right? Mm -hmm. The Brits, the the lifelong friends, you know, that you can really see their chemistry on the court. Um, And they're looking so good. Finn Bass stepping up, just executing, playing such solid tennis uh, to clinch that doubles point against Texas. The doubles looks great. It it really does. I'm not even mad at the TCU loss there in that doubles point because TCU was just too good. I do think if Baylor continues to play at the level they are, they're going to win almost every single doubles point. And if they don't, 
they have enough ammo to come back, right? Let's look at it here. Adrian Boyton, number one. This guy most So quickly, Maddie, player. not to cut you off, let me give you the numbers because the numbers are just absurd for this Baylor team. 23 and 5 at one singles, 24 and 5 at two singles, 21 and 5 at four singles, 26 and 3 at six singles, 30 and 2 at the number five singles position. Now, notably left out, they're 18 and 10 at the number three position, and they recently made the switch. Sven Lock down to number four, your brother Nick Stokowiak up to number three. Now, you know, for Nick, he's, it's been a lot of three set matches for him thus far at number three, but to be honest, Given the strength and the depth of this Baylor team, that's really all you need is to stay alive. And so to your point, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Ridiculous, man. And all of these guys, I'm telling you, every single one of them you can see is contributing. Adrian Boyton, it starts at the top, right? Mm -hmm. This guy, tournament's most outstanding player. I think everybody in the facility knew that he was going to get that. The way that he played was just incredible. He's starting to find his form now at the end of the season. He's playing as well as anybody, and he's established himself as the number one guy on this squad, one of the best players in the country, no question. He can beat anybody when he plays at the level that he was. Nick always tells me, Mr. Adrian is C-ball, hit ball and that's really what it is you watch it you're looking at guys like Spaziri and Alistair Gray that he played they're looking to the heavens they're looking to their coaches going what can I do right and there's really nothing you can do Adrian hits a pro ATP level ball and he's on it every single time this guy was a treat to watch and it was just funny some of the fans that are sitting back there opposing team Texas fans TCU fans they're looking at him going well, man, you know, what is Elliot supposed to do here? He looks pretty good, but that kid just keeps hitting winners over and over again. And I'm like, yeah, dude, there's really nothing you can do. When Adi's playing that well, it's over. You know, you look at Matias Soto, you mentioned the cramps, Gruskin. I looked down there in that TCU match, and, and he was down. He was lying flat on his back. There were trainers out there. And for a minute, like, I wanted to throw up. I really mm -hmm. did. Like, I wanted to puke because I didn't know what happened. And I thought that he rolled his ankle or something really, really bad. And I just, I know how important he is to the team. Madi is tremendous. And really, it's more about the team than it is himself. You know, mm -hmm. he doesn't care that he loses that match to Luke Fon, but not for him. He didn't want to let the team down. But... They bailed him out. He comes back the next day against Micah Braswell, who is definitely going to be a top 10, even top five player in college tennis over the next few years. You guys watch. You know I've been high on him this mm -hmm. entire year. Braswell is the real deal. He had no chance against Madi in that match. Soda, who was so, so, so good. And you could just tell that he wanted to rebound and show everyone, hey, I'm not hurt. This is this is me, man. I'm coming out here. And he rolled him. Nick at three. Look. Nick played great. He really did. I'm so proud of Nick. He had to move up into the top half of the lineup, like you mentioned, Gruskin. He's playing stiffer competition, but I think he's playing his best tennis of the season. I really do. I watch all of his matches, his level, everything that I've seen out of Nick. If he continues this way, he's going to be just fine. He's going to get exactly what he needs to out of that number three position. Um, and what I really liked the most was just his compete level. Right. Mm -hmm. He came back after losing a couple of first sets. And granted, he's playing good guys, right? Sanders, see him. These are top players. But after a couple of shaky first sets, you know, where he didn't necessarily play his best, he said, okay, I just got to crank it up. 
I'm going to take my game up a notch. I'm going to lock down on my returns. I'm going to make more balls, cut down on the errors. And he came back and extended both of those matches into three sets. That's exactly what you want to see there. Um, Very proud of Nick. Sven Law, look, Sven, this guy put on a master class against Jake Fernley in TCU. That was by far his best match of the season. And it came when we needed it most, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he had to have that match against TCU and he was phenomenally avenged the loss to Fernley from about a week prior in Fort Worth. Fernley got him there. Sven said, all right, man, let me just, I'm finding my game here. I think he's more confident in what he's doing on the court. You can see it. Um, and he's just kind of relaxing into his game. And so that, that bodes very well for the Bears when you've got Sven playing that well. Charlie Broom, or Chuck, as I should call him, maybe <laughs> Chuck, I don't know. The, uh, the Baylor Twitter guys, tweeted out Chuck and I had to do a double take. I'm looking at that going, who the hell is Chuck? And I'm like, Chuck oh, Broom. Chuck, Chuck Broom. I'm like, oh, okay, Charlie, whatever. But I watched Charlie play. He was right next to Nick. I was very impressed with Charlie. Just his ball striking. Mm-hmm. You can tell he was in his zone. Mm-hmm. He was confident and he made a couple of really good players. He played Tomas Yurisek and Chi Chi Wang and he just outclassed them. He just outclassed them and was confident hitting a solid, solid ball. The contact was incredible there. He was hitting deep. It was really fantastic tennis by Charlie. If he plays that way, I mean, again, he's not going to lose. And then you look at my guy Spencer Furman at six, right? Come on. The match comes down three all. I'm telling you, there is not anybody else that you want on the court in that situation. I've seen it for years. I've known him for years. Everybody, you know, when, when the match got to three all, kind of work their way down to that court six and I'm kind of strolling down there going man we got this we got Fermi <laughs> playing six this is ideal scenario he's built for those moments he just is and he came through he was the physically stronger player Paralek was actually the one that was cramping at the end and Spencer just outlasted him but mentally that is absolutely the guy there that you want in that situation. So top to bottom, it was a complete team effort. And I'd be remiss, guys, if I didn't talk about the seventh man. You want to talk about top six. How about the seventh man? R-Y-A-N? Led, led by my guy, R-Y-A-N Dickey. <laughs> this guy on the sideline leads the chance. He really, he's mastered the art. I don't even want to say heckling because he doesn't heckle. He does everything within the rules, but he knows how to get Mm -hmm. under guys' skins. Mm -hmm. Even coaches. You Mm should have seen Roditi. Roditi was looking at Dickey and he was just, you could tell he wanted to rip his hair out, but it's all within the rules. And we had some other guys down on the sideline where the actual tournament officials came up to Baylor and said, guys, fantastic job cheering that's exactly how it should be done the officials even knew that it was crazy but the seventh man everybody that's not on the court there's too many of them to name it is led by dickie though my guy um gets the crowd fired up everybody's playing and and it's an entire team effort coach woodson will never take any credit but he does deserve a lot of credit the entire coaching staff Isaac, george george is the ultimate hype man um but coach woodson is really the guy steering the ship he deserves a lot of credit everyone does but yeah right now for me this team undisputed number one in the country and i I think they're rolling into ncaa's exactly how they wanted to oh and by the way one more thing remember before let's take a trip down memory memory lane here guys for just a second this article came out january 12th (laughs) baylor 
was not picked to win the Big 12 in the preseason poll by the coaches. You guys remember that, right? You remember that. So I'm telling you right now, these guys did not forget that. It is hung up in their locker room. They wanted to make a statement and say, you know what? We're not sharing, sharing Big 12 with TCU and Texas. Hell no. This is our tournament. This is our conference. And they, I mean, they really did. They showed that they are the best team in the Big 12. It was fun to watch. Woo. All right. That was a lot. No, I'm just going to say what everyone, listeners, uh, we're feeling it, Chris and I too. I'm turned on. That's why you let Matty Stacks on site, because that's the sort of breakdown, the analysis we are looking for. How can you not be excited about the Baylor team after hearing that? I would agree with everything you said, and <laughs> Chris showing us the update. His pants, not exactly dry after that rant, but you talk about for uh, this Baylor team, like you're doing your recipes for a national championship winning team. Can they win the doubles point? Yes. Can they win the match at number one singles? Yes. Do they need to win the match at number one singles to win the duel? No. And that's a good thing. That's a good no. Do they have a clear recipe to four points? Yes. Doubles, four, five, six. That's going to be what does the meat and potatoes of their run through the NCAA tournament. Now, how I know you've been spending a lot of time with Coach Woodson is if you're around him for 20 minutes, he's going to get into a conversation about how nice of a ball Adrian Boytan hits. And there's no denying it because you watch it for two seconds. You're like, that's different than everyone else. Give me that guy, please. I would echo that a thousand percent, Maddie. And then again, the last ingredient of a national championship team is the seventh man. And especially when you're playing road matches, you have to find a way to get your team amped, but to keep your team together during the stresses of a dual match. This Baylor team, as they would quote at the beginning of the match, stays together, stays together. They do their thing, and it it's working right now. And, you know, they avenge the Texas loss. They, you know, TCU was impressive. That's a 4-3 home win. It, you know, is what it is. The Texas match was the one to meet. They smacked Texas. And I mean, Chris, I promise we're going to let you talk now. Uh, it's time. We're bringing you back here. But, uh, you know, to you, your extended thoughts on this Big 12 tournament, Chris, in general, and then also this Baylor team who, you know, Texas, they're really young. And I, again, that loss for Texas, the reason we're not talking about it from that perspective, it means nothing to that. That doesn't change the perspective. That win had to do with Baylor. It had nothing to do with Texas. But when you look at the Big 12 Conference, again, ditto, Chris, your thoughts on this Baylor performance here this week, your thoughts on just the conference in general, how it shook out this season. Unmute. Yeah, you're you're on mute, Chris. Couldn't say it any better than what Maddie said. Uh, I mean, Baylor is certainly hitting their stride. They look great. Um you know, all, all three of those teams up there, clearly the, the you know, the class, if you will, uh, the entire Big 12 is good, but those three are all national championship contenders, right? And and none of them did anything to show us really uh, anything otherwise necessarily, but, but Baylor definitely, uh, you, you're definitely giving the nod to them. You kind of felt like that uh, coming in. They backed it up and, and nothing, you know, now they just look forward to the, to the big to the big dance and see see who's coming their way mm-hmm. absolutely and again for this Baylor team uh they've just gotten better and better as the season's progressed 29 and 4 overall they uh look again it's the recipe they are they met they meet the ingredients every ingredient you would want for a national championship team they've got it's going to be fascinating to watch coach Woodson's team compete in this NCAA stretch again TCU Texas 
in the mix. If both of them, if one of them, whatever it is, ends up in the NCAA quarterfinals, if one of them sneaks into a semifinal as well, that shouldn't shock anyone. And even Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, they're going to make some noise NCAA tournament. They could 4-3 a top 16 seed or end up in, you know, that round of 16 before you know it. There's a lot of talent in the Big 12. The, you know, the densest six-team conference you're ever going to find. Uh, Certainly, the conference tournament delivered the goods this past weekend. Hope all of you enjoyed part one of our two-part Great Shot Podcast college tennis season finale. What an outstanding weekend of play we just saw. And again, we had so much to discuss here on this week's show. We decided to divide it into two parts. So tomorrow on this podcast, you'll hear part two of that conversation with Matt Sikowiak, Chris Hallioris, discussing everything that happened this past week in the college tennis world. We'll talk about the ACC tournament. We'll talk about the Pac-12 tournament, give our updated Crack Rackets top 10 rankings and everything else that's going on. Of course, if you have missed anything from the past week, not just in the college tennis world, but across the tennis landscape, rest assured, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Perhaps you're a challenger tennis fan, rest assured. We've had two challenger tennis-centric podcasts this week on the GSP on Monday. Damian Kust, his friend Jakob Bobro, recapped all of last week's action on Wednesday. David Gertler and I talked a little bit more about Jensen Brooksby, but then we talked Nicolas Yeri and all of this week's action as well. On the mini break, we're recapping all of the action happening on the ATP and WTA Tour levels. Uh, of course, right now on the ATP Tour, we've got two 250s in Estral in Munich starting today, or I suppose tomorrow for me, but today by the time you're listening to this podcast, we will have had our first WTA 1000 main draw match in Madrid, the WTA circuit about to get going once again. So an exciting time to be a tennis fan as always. A lot to keep up on. Again, if you have missed anything, you can catch up on it all on our website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Mini Break Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and all of our shows here at Crack Rackets. If you need more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly. I am at Great Shot Pod. Shout out as always to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Turner Grip. Again, if you would like to join the Turner team, you can email them at sales at unique sports.com or call 800 554 3707. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host, Matt the Cracks Koyak, Chris Hallioris, our super producers, Max Fleeter and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Turner Grip, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.